Congrats to our friend and Mr. Olympia champion, Big Rami, as well as the Enhanced Labs for dropping new collaboration, Whey Isolate. This new product is packed with the right macros, weighs in at three pounds, and has free shipping. Check it out at www.getenhanced.shop and use code GENIRON to save at checkout. That's getenhanced.shop and promo code G-E-N-I-R-O-N to see Big Rami's new three-pound isolate with Enhanced. Welcome to the Generation Iron Podcast, featuring the biggest names in bodybuilding, fitness, combat, and strength sports world. If you want to be a bodybuilding champion, it takes hours and hours every day of being dedicated and being passionate about it. As your boy here, Kai Green, a.k.a. Mr. Getting It Done. Tune in to the GI exclusives on the Generation Iron Airwaves. We are back to Generation Iron Podcast. Today's guest is one of the best and uh, most successful 212 bodybuilding competitors of all time. Uh, he's been competing on many stages. He's been coaching people. And he's been very honest in his approach um, and very honest uh, in his belief how to actually succeed in the sport of bodybuilding and in his business in general. Um, I've been wanting to talk to him for a while, but we never really crossed paths until now. And I'm very happy to bring to the podcast Jose the Boston Mass Raymond. Good, how you doing, Vlad? Good, good, good to meet you, man. You too, finally. I've watched all your stuff the last however many years. Thank you, man. to meet you in person. Thank you, I appreciate it, man. I'm a big fan of yours too, man. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, man. So, uh, it was definitely a pleasure to be talking to you, man. I know it's been a crazy time for everybody, you know, with the, with the shutdowns and everything. So, first of all, how you yeah. been, man? How you been through the 2020, man, and obviously going to 2021, man? What's happening? Uh, it's, it's been a rough year. I don't know if you know much about my background, but I had a hip replacement in 2019 and, um, you know, that took a, a while to really recover and get back to feeling a hundred percent. But, you know, the, the shutdowns have been a curse and a blessing because I've really been able to focus on myself and recovering and doing all the things I need to do to to come back to life you know um where if everything was was crazy like it normally is i might not have had the time to put aside to for healing you know um, I, i'm growing my legs are back to you know better than they were the last time i competed so i'm feeling great that's amazing. So you officially retired, right? You, I think you made that announcement, but now you think, I, I know you're thinking of a comeback potential. Is that true? Yeah, because uh, when I retired, I retired due to injury and nobody wants to retire not on their own terms, you know? Um, so now that I'm feeling better and I'm able to do exercises I haven't done in years and my body's responding, then I, I feel, uh, I feel like I got something left. And I just love competing. I've always been that guy that competed multiple times a year. I never backed down from any challenge and uh, all over the world. And, and I've enjoyed it so much, you know, and there's nothing different today. You know, I, I still love the, 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 the whole preparation for a competition, the, the whole challenge of, of, you know, making myself freaky. I want to be a one percenter. You know, 
uh, of someone on earth can look like that. And, and I love it. So I had to give it up because I was injured. And now I'm not. So that's why I'm thinking of it, you know? You know, it's funny. Your announcement of retirement came uh, surprising to me, you know, because I didn't know you were going through all these injuries. Like, I had no idea. And then suddenly, it seemed like you were doing really well. Like, you won some big shows. And then suddenly, yeah. you're retiring. And, and now I realize that it was due to serious stuff that was going on. Yeah, I actually won a show my last year competing. Uh, my second to last show I competed in was the Dominican Pro. And uh, I won that one. And then I did... Um, uh, the Japan show, that was my last show. I knew I was going to retire because I was having trouble walking. You know, it was weird because I could do things in the gym. I could push a lot of weight and just enough to stimulate my legs. But everything else sucked, like walking around, driving a car, getting up and down stairs. It was very painful. So I had no other option but, but to address the issue and see what happened. You know, I have an older brother who went through the same thing and he recovered awesome. So I did have a lot of confidence that I could um, uh, I could live a healthy, strong life. But I didn't know that I would be this strong and I didn't know that my body would bounce back as strong as it did. Or I would have not retired. I would have said, I'm going to take a little hiatus and, you know, address these issues and come back. Right. But, didn't you uh, didn't you also have shoulder problems too? Because I saw a video you were talking about your shoulders are hurting too as well, right? I do. I do. You know, thirty years of heavyweight training catches up to you. So, I have some mobility issues with 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 you know external rotation. Nothing that therapy. I had therapy this morning on my shoulder. Um, I, I think I can address that without surgery um, and, and be fine. I'm, as far as strength, the size of my shoulders aren't down or anything. It's more of a posing issue. We're trying to hit a front double. I, I, I can't get the arms back quite as much or a lat spread or a side tricep. Um, but I think all of that will get better in time with more practice and therapy. So what do you think about the state of the 212 division since, since, since your retirement? You know what I mean? How, do you, how did you feel it developed and what do you think the current state of it is? I love it. I love it. I think the current guys are doing a great job of representing the class well. And, you know, very competitive. There are some guys that I absolutely love their physiques but are disappointing when it comes show day. Like, obviously, uh, Derek Lunsford comes to mind because – He's arguably got one of the greatest physiques in the world, um, but, but he's not nailing it on show day. So that's a little disappointing because, man, is his physique incredible. Um, I love what Sean Clarita has done. I've known Sean a long time. Uh, we kind of came up similar paths as far as starting in the amateur ranks and the lower weight classes and starting in the natural federations and, and slowly climbing and climbing and, uh, Man, he climbed to the absolute top. He's number one in the world. So Incredible. I don't you, you mentioned Derek Lunsford. You mean like he's missing his peak, you say, dialing in? That's the issue? Yeah. Yes, exactly. It, it's, a, um, it's a day of the show issue or a week of the show issue. Because I've seen him months out and he looks unbelievable. He looks like he's only a few weeks off. And then day of the show, he looks like he's not ready. So, um you know, physique structurally, he's got the muscle 
He's got the lines, and man, I'd love to see him nail it just once. It's so funny. I saw a video of you from five years ago at the Olympia prep. You woke up in the morning, and before you had breakfast, you were doing posing. Yeah. And you said, wow, I look amazing right now. I wish I can go on stage right at this moment on an empty stomach. <laughs> like, And you always, you said in that video, you always look the best like in the morning, but the show was yeah. at night. So I was going to ask you about that, like dialing in, how difficult is it? Like, because sometimes you feel like you're ready to go, but obviously you can't. And then you well, you lose it in that, in the span of a few hours, basically. Yeah. So always when you, you spent seven, eight hours sleeping, laying down, and then you get up and you're, you're super dehydrated. You, you, you know, you pee out, pee out all, everything. You sweat out in the night. When you wake up in the morning, your skin is so paper thin. You can see every detail, and your stomach is empty, so you can pull up crazy vacuum. So when I wake up in the morning, my waist is at its smallest, my skin is at its tightest, and I was never someone that got flat. I never really got flat, so even if I was a few pounds lighter, I was still full enough to look my best. I always look my absolute best straight out of bed. I wish prejudging was at 6 a.m., you know, because I would roll out of bed and get right on stage. I don't, I'm not one of those guys that needs to carve up and eat a lot to get on stage and look full. It, it actually has the opposite re reaction to me. So at the Olympia, when they would have prejudging at 11 a.m., I'd be at my tightest. I'd purposely sleep in till like 9 o'clock. And then finals, we wouldn't hit the stage till 10 o'clock at night sometime. And by then, you know, the, the fluid, the food that I've had to eat um, would start to add up in, in, in whatever stress you might have from walking around, laying down backstage. Um, I never looked my best at finals compared to prejudging. That's so interesting, man. So what do you think is the right way to, like for other bodybuilders that are watching this, what's the right way to to dial in for the finals, you know what I mean, without, you know, without losing your... Well, the, the, the best thing to do is get back to your room as quickly as possible. Um, because a lot of, you know, especially the bigger name guys are going to get mobbed by fans. So now you could be spending a few hours extra time on your feet, you know, whether they're there. Oftentimes we'd have um, obligations to work a booth. So we'd get off stage at prejudging and then have to work a booth for four or five hours. And that was never a good thing. You know, the, the best thing to do is get back to your room, um, get off your feet, try to sleep. Sleeping is always the absolute best thing you can do as a bodybuilder. Um, it'll help dry you out and, uh, you know, keep the food to a minimum. Now, depending on the competitor, obviously some bigger guys will need more food. So you have to be very strategic with when you're getting the food in, too, and um, how, how you're going to digest that food. You know, I've seen uh, Flex Lewis. He literally cuts his meat with uh, scissors till they're little microscopic pieces. So he doesn't even have to chew it. So it digests faster. And, and people with digestive issues, that's a smart thing to do is to break down the food before you even eat it. And um, yeah, just rest, get off your feet, stay away from the from, from walking around the expos and whatnot. Um, you know, that's it, it really depends person to person as far as who holds water more than 
normal, how you digest carbs and whatnot. But the biggest thing is to rest and, and avoid all stressful situations. It really, the weekend of a show, you should be just eating, sleeping, and posing. That's it. Mm. How do you feel about the rumors? Some people are saying that a 212 may potentially go away completely. Um, I think that rumor started when the Arnold Classic stopped featuring it or whatever. Uh, do you think it's a possibility of that ever happening? Um, no, no, I don't. Because I think the the powers that be that, that are um, uh, um, judging, uh, uh, that are running the IFBB, I think they really enjoy having it. And I think they know that. So you have what bantamweights that turn pro, welterweights, lightweights, middleweights, even some light heavyweights. If you got rid of the 212, you'd have five divisions with nowhere to go. So you'd be losing five divisions worth of IFBB pro cards and fees. And you'd be losing a lot of money if you got rid of that. So um, I think, yeah, when it comes down to money, it would be a stupid decision to get rid of it. And they don't have to pay as much as they pay the open guys. The sanction fees cheaper. The prize money's cheaper. Um, it's a win-win situation for the 212 guys. The only guys that aren't winning are the competitors, you know, because they're not getting paid much. Even when I first started as a pro, I had supplement contracts, magazine contracts. So I had an ability to make up for the lack of prize money, um, where today it's harder and harder. Um, you have to really be good at utilizing your social media to, you know, monetize in your own way, whether it be coaching or selling merchandise. But you're, th those supplement contracts are gone. You know, $100,000 contracts a year, um, you know, a $50,000 uh, um, magazine contracts, those are all gone. So you have to be creative nowadays. I think it was a lot easier when I first started out than it is today. How did you get into the bodybuilding industry? And uh, I know you 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 had a very uh, rough upbringing, right? You were adopted, I believe. Uh, you and your yeah. brother. Um, yeah. How did you discover bodybuilding, and why did you decide to you know get into the industry? Well, it was it was it was a natural um, progression. You know, as a kid, I, I had muscles as a little kid, and all my older siblings would show me off and and be like, look what he can do. He's five years old, and they'd hang me from a, a door casing, and I'd do pull ups. I'd do push-ups, and I would always flexing and imitating the Incredible Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, He-Man. Those were all the characters that made me crazy. I loved them all. And then, you know, gradually I was playing sports. Um, and then, you know, in, in my brother's teen, early teen years, we were both struggling to kind of fit in and, and know our place and who we were. We grew up in a really affluent um, north of Boston, affluent town. We were the only Puerto Ricans in, in the, the entire town. So in the summer, we'd both have dark, dark skin and kinky, curly hair. And it, um, we, we didn't fit in with the, all the Irish and Italians there, you know. And so, our, you know, we'd get in fights and whatnot. Our social worker bought us a weight set and... and my brother ended up slowly building a gym in our basement. And uh, so as soon as he started, I started. So I started at like seven years old. And 
it just progressed from there. Then I wanted to get bigger. I started training at the, the high school gym and the local gym. And then by 14, I was the biggest kid in the school, you know, as a freshman, sophomore. And um, it was quite evident what my body type was. So once, once I got out of college, my brother, or I wasn't even out of college. I was 18. I just graduated high school. My brother convinced me to do a show with him. And, and it was the New Englands, which is now the Jay Cutler Classic in Boston. And, and I won the overall team division. And yeah, yeah. And it was big back then. Back then, they, you know, we'd have like 15 teenagers competing. So it was a big deal. And, you know, there was easily a thousand fans. And it was just the greatest feeling on earth to me because finally there was no, you know, I played football, baseball, all sports where you relied on other players. You relied on the quarterback or the defense. There was nobody. It was just me on stage with other guys. And and I knew what I was meant to do, you know. And, and, and at that point, I didn't really understand the full aspect of dieting and cardio and fat loss. I was just a jack teenager. And, and you know, it, it was came natural to me. So I fell in love with it. I fell in love with that, the process and, and the feeling I got from being on stage and having an auditorium full of people cheering for me. You know, it, it's it's addicting, you know. Um, so once I did it once, I started competing multiple times a year, every year since 1993. And, you know, honestly, the, uh, there's only been, you know, three years since 1993 that I haven't competed. Yeah. So it was crazy. At what point did you realize you need a coach, like a guru or whatever? You know what I'm saying? Like they, they, did you start working with one at an early early age or later later on? No. So my brother was really smart with nutrition. He, he went to Springfield College. He studied nutrition. Then when I went to college, I studied the same stuff. So I had a great handle on what I was doing, particularly into my pro career. By the time I was a pro, I had already won eight national titles as an amateur and I really I knew what I was doing but what I didn't know was the the, the supplementation side of it too too well and um and it used to be 202 the division and I was right there and I think that was my best uh that was my best physique right around two, 202 and then they changed it to 212 giving it 10 more pounds well, when you're my height, putting on another 10 pounds is is not only difficult, but it's not even ideal. Um, but maybe putting on five, six, seven pounds. So at that point, I was already 34 years old. Uh, no, no, 37 years old. And I figured, uh, you know, Tiger Woods has a coach. Michael Jordan had a coach. You know, who am I to think that I can, should be able to do this without a coach? So I had known Chris Aceto for many years, and uh, he was a fan of mine. I was a fan of his, and, and he'd always had really nice things to say about me. So we, we, you know, I asked him. I was on a flight with him, and I asked him, and he's like, "Well, finish this show and see if see see how it goes, and maybe we'll talk." So I did the New York Pro in 2012. 
and I ended up placing third behind Kevin English and Sammy Al-Haddad. And he called me the next day. He, he just saw something in my physique that he knew he could tweak. He wanted the challenge. So we started working with each other in, you know, like the spring of 2012. And the rest is history. And um, he was able to help me put on that extra size um, um, in a safe way. And while keeping my physique as intact as possible, because you know, when you're that short, it's only a matter of a few pounds that really blows things out of proportion, you know. Um, so Chris was awesome. And, and I always liked his background and, and he's not known to be an extremist in any way. Um, he was always looking out for my best interests. So. I, uh, you know, I had a great run with Chris. We we won seven or eight shows together. Um, yeah, but it was just a matter of I needed to step up my game. And I'd already, I was already in my late 30s by the time I had started working with him. So I knew I had exhausted every effort to try to get better. And I needed to, you know, some of the other guys that I was neck and neck with were like three three or four inches taller than me. Like Eduardo Correa, Flex Lewis, so the the progression from two hundred two to two twelve was was welcoming for them. They they loved it. You know, putting on ten pounds was nothing for them. For me, being that much shorter, I'm like, oh, that's going to be difficult. And try to keep a nice, aesthetically pleasing physique. You know, I could have put the weight on, but I would look like a block. Um, so I, you know, I needed a coach to help me figure that out on how to do it the best, safest way possible. That makes sense. So a lot of a lot yeah. of the people that watch, uh, they're gonna watch this interview are, are younger guys that want to get into the industry, right? Yeah. So what do you think they should be looking for in a coach when they want to get a coach? If they want to take bodybuilding seriously, if they want to get a pro card eventually, and they want to make this into their career, what recommendation? Because I know you coach people too, right? You have clients. Yeah. So what do you think they should be asking their coach? What's the right approach to getting one? Uh, I, would, I would go with a coach that sticks to basics. If anyone coach tries to reinvent the wheel, speak in too many technical terms, use all these social media terms like refeeds and reverse diet and all this stuff, um, then stay away from that. Those are red flags that someone is, they're more marketing themselves than they are trying to help you. Um, I would stick with a coach that is with the basics, that, that emphasizes your training more than anything. Your train, your lifestyle, your training, your sleeping, not missing meals and, and doing all the things that it really takes to get there. Listen, anyone can take drugs. It, but but that's not the core. And that's not what a lot of people want to hear. That, that, you know, drugs is everything. No, no, drugs definitely play a role in every sport. But if you don't have the foundation down, which is training, proper training, uh, the scheduling of your training and, and getting proper rest and nutrition, then all the drugs in the world aren't going to work. They're not going to make you Mr. Olympia. So I, I would find a coach that is not going to sugarcoat things and, and be real and not try to just appease people. Nowadays, yeah, a video that talks about drugs is going to get more hits 
So that's what people are doing. They're clickbaiting people. I don't clickbait. I'm going to tell you the truth of what I know through my experience. I never would have had the success that I had if it was not for my consistent training and and the, the lifestyle approach that I took, you know, from a young age all the way up into my 40s. Um, I won eight national titles, again, without a single drug. I didn't know what any of it was. And, and it took me having to hire a coach to really understand what the drugs were and, and what they did and, you know, the reality of it, you know, because the natural thought process is more is better. And that's couldn't be further from the truth. There's a certain um, chemistry that, that all these things play and, and more is not better. It has to work synergistically and uh, work with your body and, and work within the confines of what you want to achieve. Um, so, so that, that, that'd be my biggest advice is, is stay away from the people that are marketing gurus and stick to the people who have real success and real results and put a primary focus on the training and nutrition, not drugs. It's interesting. Uh, I saw a video of you recently where you, uh, you stood out for Michael Hearn. Uh, Michael Hearn is the guy that everybody is, uh, people are obsessed with him. I don't know why, but people are obsessed with him. They think yeah. this guy is lying to them uh, about his uh, steroid use constantly. And, you know, uh, he's been defending himself all these years, you know, publicly, obviously. He's been in the film, you know, uh, the Natty film. And I used to actually stood up for him. You said, uh, you know, he, he could be why, why people uh, are gaining up on him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's my point is that nobody knows. Nobody has lived with Mike for 52 years, day in and day out. And my, my point is like that there are so many jealous haters. Don't you think one of them by now, after he's been in the spotlight for 30 years now, don't you think someone would have had evidence that said, hey, I sold Mike some D-ball? Or, I, I, you know, I, I, not one person has come forward to say they have any evidence that they've sold it to him and they've seen it with him. Uh, um, I, I just, and I don't personally care if he does or doesn't. My point is, why is it so hard to believe that there are creatures out there that have way better genetics than you? And I don't think he's unbelievable. I, he's six foot three, 240 pounds right now. That's not that gigantic. I mean, if, if Rami was six foot three, he'd be 440 pounds. So, you know, it, it's not that hard to believe. It's just that he's done it so consistently and he has a look that, that nobody else has. And he's strong as hell and he's consistent as hell. And I've trained with Mike many times. My brother was his training partner every day for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. When my brother first moved to L.A. back in the late 90s, early 2000, he trained with Mike every day. And that's how I met Mike. And he would tell me day in and day out. And I would say, like, he's not taking anything. The guy's gigantic. And he's like, oh, man. He's like, he's just a freak, you know. And his weight would fluctuate from 300 pounds down to 235 because he would get real bloaty, heavy to put on size and off-season, whatever. And then he would do a competition. I remember him always telling me this. He'd do a contest and be about 245. 
And then he would do a photo shoot and suck down even more. He could he always look better in photos, completely depleted and, and um, even lighter than he did in a contest photo. Uh, so that was weird to me, but it, it made sense. You know, the thinner you are, the, the more photogenic you're going to be. That's why models are so thin. Um, but yeah, I just, and I, and I love Mike. Mike is a great guy. And again, I don't care if he does or he doesn't. My whole point is, how do you know? These people are so, so, uh, they're, they're so convinced that they know it, that they hate him for it. And, and I'm like, I, you know, I have no evidence of it, and neither do you. And I personally think the guy is amazing. I think it, what I was describing to you earlier, where, where if you focus more on your weight training and your nutrition than you do on drugs, then you'll get a lot further. And, and that, I think that's what Mike has done his entire life. He is focused on the, the heavy training and eating and, and nutrition and rest and doing all the right things. And you know, the argument people make is that, well, he's claiming his natural so he can sell his supplements. Uh, but then he could have just not said anything and like everybody else and still sell the supplements. You know what I mean? I don't understand that point. Like he just wants to sell his over-the-counter supplements to you know what I mean I don't, I don't understand that point like yeah he would have gotten these these contracts to sell supplements whether he's natural or not right he, these are just lame excuses that people have to hate him and you know I, I don't have time or energy I'm too old to hate anyone I, I think uh you worry about yourself and you'll be a lot better than worrying about what Michael Hearn does you know and I'm not, I'm not one of those people who are obsessed with it. I was asked questions. You know, I get these Q&As and, and I get pretty uh, um, emphatic about my, my, my opinion, you know, that, that I, I just don't think it's impossible for him to be who he is. And, and I've seen his work ethic. He's, he's really second to none when it comes to, 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 to how hard he works and how disciplined he is. So if anyone could do it, it's Mike. Right, right, for sure. Um, Jose, in your opinion, who are the top five 212 bodybuilders of all time, in your opinion? If you were to rate top five with no specific, not like one is why five, but just right. in, no, in no specific order, who are the top five guys of all time, you think? Um, definitely Flex Lewis. Definitely myself. Definitely David Henry. Definitely Eduardo Correa. Um, and then it would be, a, you know, it would be a, Kevin English never did 212. He did the 202. Um, he was a three-time 202 winner, but at his best, at his absolute best, he, you'd have to throw him in there because when he was 202, he looked 222. So I would have to say him, um, he, yeah, I mean, you could even you could even throw in the recent uh, Kamal because um, Kamal, a lot of people don't know, is one of the greatest amateurs of all time. Uh, as far as world championship wins and European championship Asian wins, and, and the guy's one of the winningest competitors ever at almost 50 years old now. Um, and you could even throw in Sean Clarita. Um, so that's now we're up to six. Um, because Sean is kind of a new age version, kind of like the 
the the the morphed version of what you thought was possible, you know, because he, he's so little, but gigantic at the same time. You know, he, he's really maximized uh, everything on, on his physique on such a I mean, Sean would literally be 100 pounds if he didn't have this muscle. He'd be like a 100 pound guy walking around. That's crazy. Uh, the amount of muscle that he's been able to put on. So, but yeah, I, I would say for sure. Without hesitation, Flex Lewis, uh, I have to say myself, because I was in the first call-out 10 years in a row, um, um, David Henry, for having won the Olympia, uh, and just his level of density and consistency, um, not always rewarded um, where I think he should be, but um, he's definitely the OG. Eduardo Correa, because at his best, he probably should have had an Olympia win. Um, and his condition is second to none every time he shows up. Um, I, I, a lot of these names are due to the consistency. You know, we, we all competed together for 10 years straight. And that's me, Eduardo, Flex, and David Henry. That's why after that, after those names, it's, it becomes, um, you know, you could throw Kevin in. You could throw I'm glad you mentioned uh, Kevin English because he doesn't get enough mentions, enough credit. Really, I know he was in 202, right? But like, yeah. nobody really brings him up anymore. I feel like it's, it's a cool that you, met, you mentioned his name, you know? Yeah, well, Kevin, I love Kevin, man. He was uh, before I hired Chris uh, Aceto in 2011. Chris, um, Kevin actually helped me for the New York Pro, and and I beat Flex Lewis at that show. Um, Kevin and I were very, very close. And um, when I was coming up, and, and he was the first one to give me uh, credit, to, to to give me mention. When people said, you know, what do you think of this Jose coming up? A lot of the guys were like, yeah, you know. And Kevin was right away. He's dangerous. He's very dangerous. He's going to be great. And, um, you know, we had a mutual respect for each other and a friendship and He's a very quiet guy, so he doesn't post a lot. He doesn't promote himself a lot. And, you know, it's easy to get lost in this social media world, the bodybuilding. But the true the true um, bodybuilding purists know, love, and respect Kevin English. You know, yeah, I always do. Because he played a big role in my career coming up, for sure. So, do you know, back in the day at Olympia, they used to have a comparison round between uh, heavyweights and, uh, and, a, and a lightweight, right, bodybuilding? So, what do you think about if they if they have to bring it back and at the end they do overall champion between the open division and 212? What do you think about that? It would be awesome. It would be awesome. I think um, I think it should start at the local level, like at, a, um, you know, say the New York Pro. They want to do it for fun and throw out uh, an extra five grand. And say we're going to have a pose down between the open winner and the 212 winner. And whoever wins gets an extra five grand. And it's sponsored by Generation Iron. And, you know, that that's how it's going to have to happen. Because there's no really rules against it, you know. Um, it would just be something fun. And the crowd would love it. And it would, it would create a buzz throughout the industry. And everyone would be talking about it. And. I guarantee you there's going to be a couple of shows throughout the year 
where it's very close, if not the 212 guy could beat him. I think so too, if you, if you really judge it objectively. I know the guys who open will have a height advantage constantly, right? But if you really judge based on the physiques, I feel like 212 guy will have a uh, at least a chance, you know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. There's, well, put it this way, I, um, at, not even my best, but a couple of times throughout my career where I was close to my best, I did open shows. I did two open shows, and there were some names in there. Um, you know, I was proud to, to say I beat Steve Kuklo, you know? I beat the, the Phoenix Europa in 2015, and I placed second in the open division. Second. A lot of people had me winning. So there's, um, there's definitely argument to be made that 212 guys can stand with the open guys. I did the Ferrigno in 2017. With, yeah, with a lineup that had Cedric McMillan, uh, Brandon Curry, and, and then in third place was Josh Wade, and I was fourth. So, yeah, you easily – these two 12 guys uh, mean business, you know. And you're going to have next year Flex Lewis in the open. You had Hadi Chupan that arguably could have won the Olympia either one of these last two years. You know, he's that good. And Flex is going to be that good. So, yeah. How, how do you feel about Flex going to the Open when you heard that he's doing it? I mean, how do you, what, do you, what do you think about that? I'm excited. I was so happy for him. Uh, he's still got plenty of time. Um, and he's got nothing to prove in the 212 division, you know. Um, and he Flex is a guy who needs new challenges. He needs to always be moving and shaking and, and have something new to you know, to, to aim for. So that was a perfect timing. He won seven Olympias. Um, he was clear and by far the best 212 ever. Nothing to prove. And, and I think with a few extra pounds, you know, he'd been saying for years that he wasn't allowing himself to grow. He wasn't training. He wasn't having a real off season to really put on size. Well, now he can. And, and bodybuilding is not a height and weight contest. It's how the muscle is distributed. It's how it's conditioned, how it's detailed, and how it's presented. And for my money, Flex has all of the above in spades. You know, he, he's a great poser. He knows how to show his strengths and hide his weaknesses. He gets in tremendous condition. All he needs is just a few more pounds to be a little rounder, a little fuller, to stand with bigger guys and um, or, or taller guys. I'm not even going to say bigger. You know, another guy that moved up from 212 was was Bonac. William Bonac was a 212 guy, and he's been second at the Olympia. He's won a couple Arnolds. Um, these guys are no joke. You know, if judged fairly, like you said, objectively. The best physique wins, not that biggest, heaviest guy. Right, for sure. You know, Brian, Brian Ainsley is hinting that he might uh, go into 212 division. Uh, how do you think he would do in it? Because I know he started in the, in the 212 um, yeah. originally, but then obviously uh, he reached success in the Classic. But how do you feel if he were to go back? Uh, he, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think he would do that well because he's structurally a smaller guy, kind of like a – uh, uh, Sean Clarita, but he's taller, obviously. Um, so he doesn't, he's not meant to have over 200 pounds of muscle on his frame. 
Um, he could be his qualities incredible and his condition is incredible. I don't know if he would have that same condition at two, 200 pounds, 205. Um, I, I just don't see it. I think thicker, rounder guys, which are a dime a dozen in the 212 division, um, he, I think he'd have a tough time. I think he needs to go back to the drawing board and fix a few of the things that he messed up in, this year. Um, I think he's still one of the best classic guys in the world, clearly. And, and there, he can still be better. He can still focus on a few of the, the presentation issues he, he, he had this year, um, maybe a, a bring up a few body parts. He can be better. I would never, if I were him, I would never switch to 212. I would focus on improving in the classic division. The fans love him. They love the rivalry with him and Chris and, and, and now um, Rough Diesel. Um, if he improves, he can still be number one or top two, top three in the world. That ain't so bad. Um, I, I'd hate to see him go to 212 and get lost in the shuffle. Because I don't, he ain't gonna be top three in the world in two twelve. Mm -hmm. So besides Sean Clarita, who else out of the out of the new school of two twelve bodybuilders? Who do you see succeeding, and who do you see as you know being the leaders of the of the division? Uh, obviously, George. George is um, so consistent. George Peterson, the bull, is so consistent with his uh, uh, you know performances, everything, conditioning. Um, and he's getting better. He's still trying to um, master the show day uh, condition of a two twelve guy. When he, you know, he was—I don't know his exact weight, but I think he was in the upper eighties or low nineties as a classic guy. So it, it takes a little while to figure it out exactly where you want to be. I think George is awesome. I think um, Keon, Keon is the one that stands out to me the most when it comes to shape and roundness and flow and size, everything. I think if he had Sean Clarita's condition, nobody on earth would beat him. I, I just, I don't think so. Um, he's just got everything, tiny hips, small waist, great front double body. Every shot is beautiful. Um, he's, he's the next big thing that, that, once he starts nailing it, forget it. I don't think anyone could beat him. Yeah, he made a lot of noise when he came in the industry like a couple of years ago. He was yeah. definitely, definitely the guy everybody was, you know, looking after basically. Yeah, well, he's another one that was, that was natural, and it, you know, people didn't believe it until he switched to two twelve and put thirty pounds on in three months. You know, he, uh, he has a future, and he's really young. Um, I'm excited to see what, what he's got. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys all around the world that are, that are really good. Um, you know, there's, there's this guy from the Ukraine, Oli Kravy or something is his name. And, oh my God, the condition on this guy. And he has everything too. He's just crazy hard. Um, they're everywhere, you know? And, and I, I like to think that the years, that I spent in the 212, the, the, the um, you know, with Flex and David Henry and building, helping to build that division is what is bringing these guys out of the woodwork today. Because 
Because normally you would never have a goal. You'd never have, it's not realistic to say, oh, I'm going to turn pro as a middleweight and compete against Phil Heath. You know, that ain't going to happen. But it is possible to compete in the 212 with Kamal and, and Sean and Derek Lunsford. And, you know, these are bringing these crazy physiques to the forefront that we may never have heard of if it weren't for the 212 division. Yeah. I have a question. I, I just thought about something. Um, if you become, let's say, a pro, right, and you become a pro um, as a men's physique competitor, right, yeah. and then you say you compete in the men's physique division for a few years, and then you want to switch to whatever, to, to classic or men's open, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to get a pro card again. You can just switch over. No. No, there, there's, um, as of right now, there's no rule against that. So that's why you have a lot of the the women's physique girls they'll turn pro as bodybuilders because bodybuilding is so small women's bodybuilding it's not as competitive at the amateur level anymore because a lot of the women switch to, to physique so smart women go and turn pro in bodybuilding and then compete as pros in the physique division so yeah yeah. And if you think about it, right, it's it's much more difficult, right, to become a pro as a men's open competitor versus men's physique. Because in physique, they don't judge legs, for example, right? So yeah. you can get a pro card. Don't you think you can get a pro card easily and you can use it as a strategy to get to other divisions later? Yeah, of course. Yeah. The, the problem is succeeding in those other divisions. You know, you can turn pro and men's physique all you want. You're going to struggle if you don't have legs. So, yeah, there's no ruling against it. You're a pro, you're a pro, you can compete in anything you want. And pretty soon, I'm sure they'd let me compete in bikini if I tried hard enough. And uh, But I ain't gonna. But there's no ruling against it. Right, right, right. Uh, all right, I want to ask you about the two, uh, 2020 Olympia. I know you made some predictions. You actually, uh, you predicted Kamal winning, I think. Yeah. And you put Big Rami in the top five, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're off <laughs> 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 Yeah. But, uh, I mean, talk about that. Talk about the actual results. And were you surprised that Sean Clarita won? Were you surprised that Rami won? Um, were you surprised to see their performances? Yeah, man. I was surprised as hell that Sean won. Um, listen, I love the kid. He, he's incredible. And what he's done is amazing. But I always looked at him as, like, the little dude who looks awesome. I didn't look at him as an Olympic threat. I looked at him as, like, he looks awesome. And, 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 you know, remember Marvin Ward? He was about 4'10", 4'11". Unbelievable. He won the overall at the Team Universe as a bantamweight. Um, that's kind of what I thought it was. You, you know, like a, a smaller, way smaller guy that is competitive with the big guys. I never thought he was going to win. The You know, I knew he could be top three because he was top three last year. Um, but kudos to him you know that was awesome um i had kamal winning because kamal made improvements from the previous year he was coming back bigger fuller um he has the the combination of condition and symmetry and flow and in enough size uh, i just didn't see anyone i thought the only one that really could beat him would be lunsford but i wasn't confident his condition would allow him to. And then, so I really had it. My, my prediction was George and Kamal. Because I, I thought that George would be able to bring enough condition to really push it. 
And that was ultimately what put him in third place is that he wasn't at his all-time best condition. Um, as far as the Open, um, I, I, I thought it was going to be either Phil or, or um, Brandon again. Um, and I, did, I just didn't have the confidence that Rami could bring enough condition. Um, I, I personally think if Phil was at his all-time best, this version of Rami wouldn't have been enough to beat him. It, oh, really? I, I think so. Think. So you think if Phil was at his peak, like uh, like how he was, like I don't know what year, but he would have uh, beaten uh, Rami in the world's yeah. present? Yeah, for sure. Yes, definitely. Uh, it could, because it's a different level of detail, a different level of roundness. Um, and, and Phil just wasn't his normal cartoon-looking Phil, you know, he wasn't really round as he usually is. Um, this was definitely the best version of Rami with condition-wise, and um, he really put in the work with the posing, and I think that's ultimately what really made him stand out, is that he wasn't huffing and puffing through his poses, and he had no distension in his midsection. He had everything. Um, but I, I just didn't it was a pleasant surprise. I was very happy for him. I, you know, my predictions were that he would get beat by um, the guys that had beaten him at the the Arnold earlier in the year. I think what did Bonac beat him? Brandon beat him. He's never beaten Phil. And so there you go, right there. That puts him in fourth. And Hardy was third last year, so I had Hardy in the same spot, second or third this year. So that was going to put Rami in fifth, in my eyes. I think you're 100 percent correct. I think nobody really could could have seen that coming, you know, in, like before. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, how many chances have we had to see Rami nail it? I mean, he's been at the top of the game since 2013. We've known all about him. He's had a million opportunities to show us that he can be Mr. Olympia, and he hasn't done it. So why was I going to think any different this time? As I said, it was a pleasant surprise, but I didn't see it coming. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, how dominant do you think he's going to be in the years to come? Do you, th I don't. Do you, do you think it's do you think it's shaking? He might come off off next year when it comes to conditioning, or do you feel like he's going to dominate for years? Well, not years. He's already thirty five or thirty six. Um, the, the problem is, there's no Phil Heath in sight unless Phil turns back the clock and is able to recapture what he had. Um, I think if as long as Rami comes back exactly like he did this year, he'll have enough to beat Brandon. Um, he'll have enough to beat this same version of Phil. There's nobody on the horizon that I, that I see that's big enough, round enough, conditioned enough, well enough put together to beat Rami. Um, they're just that guy doesn't exist unless Sean Roden is allowed to compete, and and he comes back, uh, you know, full blown, a hundred percent. Then yeah, I think a hundred percent Sean Roden could beat that, no question. You know that version of Sean that won the Olympia would easily have beaten this, this Rami. No question. No question. Because he's Sean is the same height as Rami. He's Sean is um, deceivingly wide in the shoulders. His condition 
everywhere, front to back, side to side, everything is is better than Rami. Um, he's just not bigger than Rami. But, but some, some people believe that he he didn't really beat Phil uh, when he won in 2018 because they they said that Phil just had a midsection midsection was all. But if it wasn't for that one detail, Phil was beating him in, in every 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 pose. People say, not me saying. I'm just yeah. saying people saying it. Well, they're right, but that's a pose. You know, the midsection is what holds together every pose. You hit a front double bicep, you see the midsection. You you hit a, a front lat spread, most muscular, any pose, the midsection is what holds it all together. Um, so yeah, if Phil's midsection was as tight as Sean's, Phil would have won, but it wasn't. So that was the one determining factor, sure. But that version of Phil would have beaten this year's Rami too. They're just different levels of condition, different levels of density and maturity on their physiques that I don't see in Rami. And, and I'm definitely not a Rami hater. I, I love the guy. What he's done is, 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 is incredible. Like he Honestly, Rami's the nicest human being I've ever met in this industry. He really is. I'm just, you're asking, um... You're subjective, yeah, you're subjective conversation. I just want to know, really, like, you know, yeah. from the purest standpoint of, like, bodybuilding fans want to know these things, you know? Yeah, I think, I think definitely Roden in, what, 2018 would have won. I think any version of, of Phil from 2011 to 2015, 2016 would have won. Just different levels of, of, of maturity on the on the frame you know from every angle there are some angles of of rami that you know his most muscular is kind of weird looking like like it's almost like his legs are too big um in there he didn't have all the feathering and crazy detail in his quads um the, yeah yeah of course you don't do an interview and not expect to get some backlash I know, I know. All right, I want to ask you a few functional things uh, when it comes to training. Um, now, what is, in your opinion, right, what is the best way to put on mass and size without getting fat and sloppy? You know, what's the, what's the rule to that, in your opinion? Well, it, it will vary from person to person, but I personally try to put on as much weight as I can while still seeing abs. Well, still being able to see something in my midsection. If you, you know, if you're asking what type of foods I would up all my clean food, you know, when I'm dieting for a competition, I might only be taking in a hundred grams of carbs. Well, when I'm off season, I'll have at least 50 to 60 or sometimes a hundred grams of carbs per meal just to, to flood my system and, and, as long as I'm not getting sloppy, uh, I'll continue that. Um, it, it's kind of a, you know, it really does depend on the individual. And that's why you have to reassess every couple of weeks. Look and see how you look and you're growing. Are you putting on weight or are you putting on fat? You're putting on water or, or are you literally putting on muscle? Mm -hmm. Do so, you do uh, carb cycling when, let's say, you do high carb on like cool? Two days, then like lower, lower, and then off, and then do you, do you practice that? Yeah. So I never understood the pre-scheduled carb cycling, like saying, 
you know, you're going to have a low day in two days just because. I would have a low day because I'm only training arms. But then I'd have high day on back day. I'd have a high day on leg day. And then when I do shoulders, I'll, I'll go back down to a low day. So the level of carbs would be determined by the amount of energy I need to train that day. So if I got to do legs, I need a lot of fuel. So I'll eat more. You get it? If, if I'm doing arms, it doesn't require a lot of energy, a lot of fuel to do arms. So I'll cut back. That's how I carb cycle. It really depends on the fuel needs of that day. I saw a video of you um, where you said in your off season you eat whatever you want. Is that really true? Like you eat whatever, like any type of junk food. Yeah. You yes, yes, because um, and I there's a um, reason to that because I competed so much that I never truly had an off season. So my off season, say I did the Arnold Classic, I might have eight weeks to think around before I have to start getting ready for the Olympia. So really, I'm not, I just, I'm not strict. I might still have my breakfast, same breakfast every day, but I'd add some pancakes. I might have some ice cream at night. I might go get a steak tip sub during the day. I'm really lax, but it's only for a few weeks. And that's where the misunderstanding is. I never had a true off season where I was eating for gains or I was trying to get to a certain weight uh, my off season was completely off. I would no supplements, no um, no real uh, um, stringent or, or, or uh, overly analytical training. No, you know none of that. I didn't think about anything. I wanted to get bodybuilding out of my mind for for eight weeks and then go back to the grind. So it was very different than what you hear today of off season. Today, people's off seasons are as strict as their pre contests. And, you know, for me, off means off. And, and I shut it all off. I never, I never really, I was either competing or I wasn't. And it, that, that's how it went. So what about right now that you, you had your surgery, right? You're thinking about making a comeback. What, what kind of regimen do you follow right now? I was going to mention that because this has been the most different I've ever been in my life. Because... I am training to try to get back some size. You know, after my surgery, and I was down as low as 204 pounds. I, I, I haven't been that light in over 10 years. And um, I, I am now physically trying to put back some muscle. Now I'm up to about 222, and I'm in really good shape. So uh, I, I have been eating almost a pre-contest diet, but more and more food. And that's why I said I might have uh, upwards of 100 grams of carbs every meal, because that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm doing very little cardio, but I'm staying lean and putting on size. Um, this is the real first off-season I've ever had, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I'm not even an active competitor. <laughs> what kind of cardio do you prefer doing and how long? Like, is it 30 minutes? Uh, is it walking, running? What do you do? Yeah, I can't run, but um, I walk on an incline. I do a minimum of 30 minutes. I don't really start feeling anything until I hit the 20-minute mark. Um, you know, once I start sweating and breathing, and you know, I try to 
you know, ideally for me, it's 45 minutes. It's perfect. Um, I, I like to do the step mill when I'm pre-contest. I really like to do the step mill because there's a certain amount of squeezing involved too. It's not just cardio, you know, your quads get pumped, your glutes get pumped. And uh, it's a totally different type of workout and sweat like crazy. Um, but those, I alternate back and forth between the step mill and the treadmill. I used to do the bike quite a bit too. But, um, the, the bike can aggravate my knees. Um, it, it's a little more uncomfortable sitting on a seat. I'm not exactly the boot designed perfectly for that. So, uh, but those are the three main ones that I use. I don't use an elliptical or anything like that. I don't, I, I like to have like my body weight be supporting, uh, um, you know, like on the step mill and on the treadmill. What about training? Do you do um, higher weight, lower amount of um, sets and, and reps? Do you do high volume? What's the what's the right approach? What, what, how do you train right now? I'm I've always been a high volume guy. Uh, you know, every once in a while I'll I'll push the envelope and go a little heavier, and but I'm still shooting for eight to ten reps, and you know sometimes I might only get five or six, but that just means I went too heavy. So I'm always shooting for higher reps 12 15 20 um but ultimately with each exercise i'll go up as heavy as i can where i'm getting eight to 12 reps like like really all out to that all out set then i'll do one back off set that's still heavy so say i'm bench pressing and i do four or five and i'm able to only get six seven reps then I'll go down to 315 and I'll try to see as many as I can and break my record. You know, I can do 20, 22, 23 reps with 315. And, I, and I'll do that whether I'm doing incline dumbbells. You know, I'll go up to the 150s or 160s or something. And then on my last set, I'll go down to 110 and pump out as many as I can. And I do that with every, every exercise, whether it's, you know, legs. I'll do that on a squat or a, a leg press. Um, yeah, with, with bent over rows, same thing. I might go up to, you know, 365 on a, on a bent row. And then on my final set, I'll go with just two plates and get as many reps as possible. But, yeah, I've always been a high, high-volume guy. Nice. Um, what is your rule on drinking? Because I know I saw your video, you enjoy beer. Um, how detrimental can that be to training? Like, let's say you come home, have a glass of wine, a beer. Like, what's your rule on drinking? I think if it doesn't get in the way, it's it's okay. You know, um, I, I didn't drink pre-contest. That's that's another thing. So that eight-week stretch, when I'm off season, that's when I would get it all out of the way. I'd get out, get have my pizza, go out for fried clams or ice cream, beer. You know, that's the time to do that. But pre-contest, I wouldn't do it. You know, maybe every once in a while, if I'd go out to dinner, I might have a drink. Um, but not a night out drinking, you know. Um, it's all how you go about it. it, it if you think you're going to be Mr. Olympia and you're drinking every night, it ain't going to happen. You know, if you think you're going to be, you know, LeBron James, he's not drinking every night, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's not a – you can do it in the off season. You can reward yourself. 
but not while you're trying and training, specifically bodybuilding, where calories matter. Um, you, you don't want to be drinking on a regular basis. No, I am a fan. I've always had my drinks before and after the show, and uh, I mean, I mean, after the show um, or off season, but certainly not during the the heart of my prep. It's just it doesn't make sense. It's if it's not going to help me. I'm not going to do it. What is the biggest um, advice you want to give to aspiring bodybuilders? You made a video also. I've seen that you said that, you know, if you're doing it for money, it's, it's you're doing it for the wrong reason. Um, but if somebody wants to build a career like like you have, you know, in the sport, like what is the advice you want to give those people? Well, if you don't have a passion for it, don't do it. You, you, It's not one of those things where you get into it and say, well, you know, I'd like to sell houses. I'd like to get into real estate, you know. You need to have a passion for it. It's like you would be doing this, spending the same amount of time on this, whether it was your profession or not. Then it's a good idea to try to make it your profession. So I lived my entire life every day getting up and doing cardio, planning all my meals, eating clean, training every day for 30 years. It just so happened that I was able to get paid for certain aspects of it. I never never really thought of it as a way to make money. You know, back in the late 90s, I started seeing my brother signing these lucrative contracts and doing photo shoots and, you know, doing really well. And I'm like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And, and plus he was a pretty boy. You know, I, I wasn't that pretty boy. So I knew I wasn't signing fitness model gigs. I was always shorter and thicker and you know, but there was, there was a, a niche for what I did. And, and um, you know, I was able to get contracts. I was able to get the magazine contracts and guest appearances. And, you know, it was in contest winnings. There were a few years where I made more money than I had ever dreamt of making through bodybuilding. That's for sure, you know. Um, but if, if you're doing it to make money, it's not, you know, money can't be your first motivation. You have to live and breathe bodybuilding and then be a good businessman on top of it. Then you can succeed. Then you can do really well. But if you're only good at the marketing part and you don't have a physique or you don't have knowledge, you don't have access to other people, um, then you're not going to do too well. You're going to have a combination of everything. And it starts with the passion. You know, whether I ever make a penny from bodybuilding ever again, I love it and I live it. I live that part. I'm forever a bodybuilder. And one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten was uh, at the gym yesterday. A lady about 70 years old coming out of the locker room sees me and she goes, whoa. She goes, you look amazing. That's, that's hard work. And I'm thinking, I'm like, I said, thank you, you know. That's an old lady that has no idea what I do. And, you know, where someone else might be like, oh, look at this steroid guy. You know, she doesn't think like that. She thinks hard work. So that was a huge compliment to me. And that's the way I live my life and always will. I'm gonna, I live and breathe bodybuilding. It's gotten to me where I am. It's gotten me through a lot of tough times. It's my go-to. To as a stress reliever, to bring my life back into order. So I need it 
you know, like I need oxygen. So, you know, if you have that kind of passion, you can do something in this industry. The last thing I want to ask you, um, if people out there getting ready for the competition, right? What's the ballpark figure they should be spending on prep? I've seen, uh, you said on the record before, that if you're spending 10 grand, then you're basically getting ripped off. Yeah. Uh, so what should, yeah, what, should be, what should be the amount spent, like in a you know, ballpark figure overall on prep? So, so to me, I don't consider food prep because you need food to survive. You would eat food anyway. Yeah, a little bit, but but also I'm saving money from not going out to dinner and whatnot. So I think it evens itself out. So I I don't yeah, you could easily spend ten grand in food alone over the course of twenty weeks. You know, any prep is between sixteen and twenty weeks. Now you start adding expensive hormones and stuff like that. Easily, you could spend ten grand on, on craziness. I do not suggest that. If you cannot win an amateur event, a local, you know, the New England championships on chicken, tuna, rice, and oatmeal, some egg whites, then it's not for you. That's not your sport. If you need to spend thousands of dollars on drugs to win a local competition, go find something else to do. You know, I, I say Win, be the best you can, naturally, exhaust every, every opportunity you have to be your best without using anything. And then it, there's, a, there's a pyramid, you know, you, you work your way up. You win this show, you win at this level, then you win at this level. Then you know you're not going to win the Nationals as a super heavyweight, you know, taking nothing. So then worry about trying to you know if your goal is to be a pro and it's realistic then yes it's going to cost you some money but less than ten thousand we're talking about a couple of thousand maybe yeah yeah but i mean if you if you do the math it adds up quick you know especially what some of these people are doing you know the, you know growth hormone that, that's very expensive you know people are going through you know a couple kits a month Four months, that, you know, it could be five, six grand on growth alone. Never mind massage, your coach. Your coach could cost you $3,000. You, you know, you, all the food costs a few thousand. Supplements, protein powders, if you don't have a sponsor, uh, uh, any rehabilitation, you know, people do stretching. There's crazy stuff. You know, Sean Roden had a trainer almost every session that he was paying you're damn right it could cost ten thousand for me it wouldn't because i'm too cheap i i just wouldn't i wouldn't do it but i'm I saying on, a, on an amateur level on an amateur level people that are just trying to get a pro card it should not be in that range right we're talking about pros right now i'm talking about oh, amateur. amateur amateurs no do not spend the most you should spend is on protein powder uh, on your food and on your hotel and contest fees to get there. That's it. You know, it, it should be minimal. And, and even back in the day, I used to do the new, the, the um, Team Universe, where I could drive from Boston to Manhattan. You know, I didn't want to fly anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Then, then it wasn't until I started winning and, and knowing that I was a threat 
that I would fly to Vegas and do the USAs or I'd fly to Dallas and do the Nationals. Um, but you really need to have a realistic view of yourself. If you place fifth in a local competition, do not go do the Nationals. Don't spend a few thousand in airfare and hotels and it costs $300 to do the show. That's a waste of money, and it's going to be very disappointing because if you place fifth locally, you're going to be out of the 15 at the Nationals. You know, be realistic. And if you don't have a good eye and you don't know, go to someone who's who, who has a good eye. You know, you might. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You know, I always had Steve Weinberger to tell me. He didn't sugarcoat it. He'll tell you straight. And that's kind of, I, I learned a lot from him because he didn't sugarcoat it. So whether you like me or not, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, no, you shouldn't go do that show. Uh, you know, unless your goal is to go place 15 and go on vacation. Yeah. But he, he, even I tell them then, it's the, for the experience, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. You're going to be very disappointed and feel dejected after getting your ass kicked and realizing how far off you are. You know, honesty is the best policy when it comes to are people in shape or not. You know, because you don't want to send someone off and, and have them be, well, he said I was ready. No, you're not. So, yeah, don't spend a lot of money. Start building like anything else. Baby steps. Win locally. If you can win locally, then win regionally. If you can win regionally, then go win nationally. But don't don't skip any of those steps, or you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jose, thank you so much for the interview, man. It was fantastic. It was a pleasure yeah, to be here. We're finally doing this with you. Awesome, awesome. Thank but, you very uh, much. Is, you're a legend, man. You, I'm a big fan of yours, man. And uh, thank definitely, you. I'm you know, thank you. It means it means a lot to me. Thank you. So much. Visit GenerationIron.com for even more GI exclusive content on all things bodybuilding, fitness, combat, and strength sports. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are downloaded.